0: I'm away from you, I miss your touch You're the reason I believe in love It's been difficult for me to trust And I'm afraid that I'ma fuck it up Ain't no way that I can leave you stranded Cause you ain't never let me empty handed And you know that I know that I can't live without you So baby stay oh You can't be right here. I need you to stay. I told you that I never would. Have told you I'd change. Even when I knew I never could. You know that I can't find nobody else as good as you. I need you to stay. I need you to stay. I need you to stay. I told you that I never would. Told you I'd change. Even when I knew I never could. You know that I can't find nobody else as good as you. I need you to stay. I need you to stay. As soon as they loaded him into the car, uh, he got very upset, um, started to cry a little bit and said, "Uh, Tanya, it's not what they're saying it is. They're not telling the truth. They're lying about what's going on down there.
1: Hey, it's Jose Galison. You're watching No Way Jose. You can find me on No Way Jose YouTube channel and all the major audio packagers and Odyssey as well. Uh, I changed up my intro. Uh, that was a Jinx edit. Uh, this is actually what set me down this rabbit hole for this series, the uh, OKC bombing series. Um, as you can see, that one was about Yiki. If you're listening to audio, you just got a cool song. That was about it. But if you're watching a video, it was a whole edit with different uh, scenes, interspliced, and pictures, uh, mostly focused on uh, Yiki. Uh, individual we'll get into in a later episode that was, uh, you know, clearly uh, they say it was a suicide, but uh, we'll get more of that later. <laughs> uh, anyone with a brain can tell it was not. Uh, it makes no sense. But uh, today my guest is Richard Booth, uh, and this will be the guest going on throughout this whole series. Uh, this will probably, I, mean, we, we, I was originally going to do one episode, then it sprouted on two, three. Now it sounds like I'm going to do four, but I'm good with it. I want this to cover all of this. I want it to be a good resource for the OKC bombing, all the important stuff. Uh, I hope you guys get a lot out of it. Uh, just so you guys know, uh, I was let you know uh, if you're watching the fifth right now, it's a live stream. Uh, if not, uh, you'll get it about roughly a week later on the public stream. If you want it in the in, the, in between, you need to be a patron at patreon.com/noahjose2020. Lowest levels two bucks, highest levels twenty. Those are sponsors. Sponsors are. C McRae of the Whiskey and Tea Podcast. Jeremy, who has an Etsy shop. It's at etsy.com slash shop slash Raising Liberty. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeremy Rhymes. Mikel Thorpe of the Expat Money Show as well. Uh, I mean, as I said, we're covering the OKC bombing. Uh, so this is the second part. If you haven't caught the first one, go check that one out. we covered mostly the uh, the kind of the, the main narrative and then kind of picking away at the narrative. And now we're kind of going into the characters now, which will probably be at least two episodes, I think. We'll be going breaking down the main characters think we'll be going really into Timothy McVeigh and Straussmeyer This one, uh, maybe we'll squeeze in some more. We'll see how deep we go into it. But there's a bunch of characters that play into this. And uh, we'll, we'll probably later on, I mean, this may form and change as it goes, uh, it'd be fluid. But I think then we'll kind of cover all the other crazy stuff like the geeky uh, trying to do some of the other stuff that, you know, kind of dra- pulls people into this, the, uh, the crazy suicides and stuff. Uh, but yeah, also make sure you go check out top lobster, TopLobster.com. Use Jose at checkout for 10% off. It's where you can get my merch and other shows, merch and a lot of other great, uh, merch for like, you know, original work from uh top lobster himself. Uh, let's go ahead and get Richard in here and get going with it. Hey, what's up, Richard?
2: Hey, how are you?
1: Good, good. I'm excited to get back into this. Uh, the last one I was well received and I really enjoyed it. I'm ready to get into it. Um, I guess uh, normally I'd do an intro for everyone, but this is an ongoing series. So, I mean, I guess if you want to provide a quick intro for anyone popping in on this one, who you are, and then we'll, you know, we'll move on uh, and get into it.
2: Sure. Yeah, so quick intro. My name's Richard Booth. I've been investigating the Oklahoma City bombing as a
1: researcher since
2: about 2014, followed the story since it happened uh, but started making contacts with the various investigators and doing my own research and uh, putting materials online on the Libertarian Institute uh, just a couple of years ago. And so I've been writing essays, which people can find in Garrison magazine, and I'm working on a manuscript and uh, hope to bring this information to more people.
1: Yeah, I don't know if I mentioned before. I I can't believe I can't remember if I did or not. Just for those who don't know, that intro. I want to make sure I give credit. I'm not sure if I give credit. That's Jinx edit. He's probably the best follow on Twitter, especially if you're someone who's into conspiracy stuff. Some of his stuff goes a little bit kooky territory, but when he hits, he hits. Especially stuff like this. Uh, It's at Crack Connoisseur on Twitter, uh, but he keeps he gets nuked almost every other week. So uh, you just kind of keep an eye out, and he rebuilds so quick because people love him on there. Um, yeah, uh, but I do want to say this is this whole series is dedicated to him and uh, 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 Yiki because uh, Yiki just tugged at my heartstrings. I don't know, something about him. I mean, the guy looks like one of my best friends. Uh, the story is just, you know, tragic, but we'll, we'll get into that later because, uh, I mean, he legit was, like, in my opinion, kind of a hero. I mean, a lot of people know I'm an anarchist. I'm not a huge fan of cops, but, like, when you see someone who's, like, a cop and, like, is trying to be a good cop and then, like, they, you know, it's kind of like <laughs> – it's a joke. Some people say it's only good cops, a dead cop. And it's like, well, I mean, <laughs> he tried to do the right thing. And here he was, you know, he was he, the system. He tried to buck the system. The system bucked him. So, I mean, yeah, uh, not to insert my politics too much into this. But, yeah, it, it I don't know, really tugs my heartstrings when you see someone trying to do the right thing and get screwed for it. So, um, and, you know, he was a guy who had a, I think he had a wife. I mean, I think of an ex-wife at the time, young kids. But not to go into that because, I mean, I am like really excited to go into that when we get into it. Because, that, that, uh, I mean, that, like I said, this is what kind of dragged me into it. But uh, today we'll be covering some of the main characters, uh, one of the Timothy McVeigh at first. So I guess we can start with uh, who who is Timothy McVeigh? I guess we can kind of start with, you know, kind of before the bombing sort of and, and start with there. On uh, this episode, since we're going to characters and it's way harder to find information on these people we were talking before. Uh, like in the last one, I was able to hang a little bit more with you. It was, it's kind of just a, the primary information that's a lot, a lot easier. So this one it'll be a lot more you. I'll be letting you go, but you're the subject matter expert and people should definitely follow you, uh, follow your work. Uh, we'll do the plugs at the end. Um, but yeah, because uh, this one it's it's kind of like where I can't really hang because there's there's so much information in the OKC bombing. And if you go look into some of the stuff, you're like, holy crap. And the, but then you're like, well, where can I find this information? And you're like, well, good luck. And you're like, maybe you can go to Corbett Report. Like, it's just so hard to find these things. I will say, Corbett Report does have a whole thing on Timothy McVeigh. So, but I, I'm some of the content you were telling me about before, even he didn't cover. So, I'm excited to get into it. So, but I guess we'll start with Tim McVeigh. I'll let you go. I mean, uh, and if there's stuff that you miss that I'm interested in, it, I'll kind of interject. But I guess kind of start with who is Timothy Tim McVeigh
2: absolutely so first thing i want to say is the absolute best resource for anyone who wants to know about timothy mcveigh it's going to be Wendy painting's book aberration in the heartland of the real and so that's one place somebody could go fantastic book but essentially mcveigh uh, he joined the united states army and uh, he, he went into basic training. I want to say, I think it was 88, um, but he, so he's in basic training where he was with Nichols and Fortier, and he ends up being deployed to the Gulf War. And so he's there in Desert Storm. Um, he uh, was considered to be an excellent soldier. Um, he uh, earned, uh, like I think it was some sort of a bronze star, I believe, in the Gulf War. And so, he, he's over there. He's in the Gulf War and he comes back from the Gulf War and he's interested in pursuing a career in the military and he wants to go into special forces. And so when he comes back from um, from Desert Storm, he goes to try out for the special forces. And what happened here basically is is he goes to the tryout. He um, has to fill out a whole bunch of paperwork and uh, do like a psychiatric examination, all kinds of things like this. And uh, at the same time, uh, he's not going into it in the best physical condition. Uh, because he was wearing uh, these new uh, combat boots. They were not really worn in. They were brand new. And it caused a really painful, a difficult like a blister, I guess, on his foot. And it sounds like kind of a minuscule thing, but evidently, you know, in the training that, that you go through in Special Forces training, carrying 40, 50, 60, 80 pounds, all that, it can really start to add up. So you had these just great problems with, this foot injury. And so he's in special forces, which I believe it lasted only something like two days for him. And uh, the official story is that he washed out after a couple of days due to his foot injury and was advised, you know, just uh, after it heals up, come on back. I'm sure you can, you know, do it again. You'll do fine. Well, what McVeigh said uh, in a letter to his sister, and something that he told his mother as well, and this is published in the New York Times, is that on uh, I think I want to say a second or third day, something like that, uh, near the end of, of uh, special forces training, um, a group of people, uh, well, they were all first of all they were all out there and they're all standing, you know, in a row, and the uh, commander, what have you, whatever you call it, comes out there and he, he uh, reads off. Uh, a number of uh, social security numbers. I don't know how common that is. I thought that was kind of weird. But anyway, the article says he um, reads out these social numbers and says, you know, if any of this is your number, I want you to step forward. And so there are eight or nine people whose numbers were were called out. McVeigh was one of them. So he stepped forward. The others were dismissed. And then those who did step forward were taken and they were given uh, basically a briefing And in this briefing, they were told that uh, due to their uh, psychological examination, their uh, military career, uh, various other factors that they'd taken into account, uh, they had been selected uh, to be given an opportunity uh, to work on a sort of special operations type program. What he told his sister, Jennifer, is that he would be involved in uh, black operations involving, in some cases, uh, domestic matters which was highly unusual and uh, th- this is the story that not only he told his sister and he told his mom uh, but it's also uh, what he told his first attorneys when they were appointed to him he told them that yeah I, you know I'm, I'm working in, in the official capacity as uh, an undercover uh, operative for the United States government at least that's what he believed if you were to take his word for it and so um, when, he, uh, when he accepts this o- opportunity, he's told that he needs to go and he needs to go and, uh, to go and, and, and make uh, inroads with the various militias and uh, white separatist groups. And he will occasionally receive communications advising him what to do. But for now, he needs to build up a sort of a legend as a disaffected veteran who is, has some sort of uh, kind of animosity and anger and uh, is to build these inroads in these extremist communities. And so if you look at his life, that is basically what he was doing. He, he's on the gun show circuit. He's meeting all of these people in these extremist groups. Like we talked about in the last episode, he did attend a few militia meetings here and there, but uh, ultimately didn't uh, ever become a member of a militia but he was spotted at uh, various uh, radical compounds and locations. And at this point in, in the narrative is a good point to uh, begin talking about Andy Strassmeyer. What's happening here is at the very time that McVeigh has been given this offer in special forces and he goes out and he starts doing this, is also the very uh, same time that Andy Strassmeyer comes over to the United States And that is also when you begin to see uh, Strassmeyer and McVeigh in the same places at the same time. And so what I'd like to do is kind of go over Andy Strassmeyer and why he's important. And as we go along, I will illustrate uh, the points in which Timothy McVeigh uh, comes into that narrative and, and how the two are linked, essentially.
1: Yeah, um, just to quickly back up, maybe you did mention it. uh, What uh, what sources are there for this, just for people to know, and uh, you know, kind of is this just what he said, or or are there Mm -hmm. other sources that back it up? Uh, Real quick, not to go down the deep wormhole. I know people can refer to your uh, your content too. I know you have all of this documented and stuff, uh, and you've been very thorough. I know you're on Libertarian Institute as well, but just quickly, so people know we're not just blowing smoke up our ass and just telling a story. Uh, Sure. Where this is coming from.
2: Yes. So uh, the story about McVeigh uh, and the special forces and the the alleged tryout that's from July 1st, 1998 uh, issue of The New York Times. The New York Times published a letter that Timothy McVeigh sent to his sister. And that's where he goes over the so-called selection process where he uh, uh, was selected Uh, for this um, undercover type operation and uh, more details on all of that and the various things surrounding it can be found in uh, Wendy Painting's excellent book, Aberration in the Heartland of the Real, and uh, also in terms of uh, uh, where we talk about uh, McVeigh telling his first attorneys Uh, that this is what he was doing. That's also in the public record. That comes from the defense documents and defense files. And uh, it was published in in various mainstream books as well. Um, So, yeah, all that stuff is out there. And it does come from legitimate places. But, of course, we have to understand that we're taking Tim McVeigh's word for it. And he's not exactly a reliable source. Uh, But I believe that once you see the people he was interacting with around the time of the bombing... It will begin to look really interesting um, when we talk about a black operation. Well, the people he's meeting with are people who appear to be working on exactly that.
1: Yeah. And I do want to reiterate one more time. I mean, I'm not sure if you mentioned the specific aspect. I think we did mention the previous episode. I know one thing he mentioned is that he said he was essentially running drugs for the feds for uh, essentially to, I mean, and I think I emphasized this last episode when I emphasize again, because for me, this is the one that really opened my eyes like, whoa, that's kind of weird. And the idea that he said that at the time, it was not known that that was a thing the feds did. Now, I mean, anyone who pays attention at all to this stuff, if you're a new person jumping to this fear, haven't really been paying attention to this type of stuff, it may take you by surprise. But anyone who's been paying attention to this stuff knows that this has been a... Declassified thing for a while, or maybe not. Maybe there isn't declassified. I don't know, but it's it's well known fact at this point that the feds have in the past uh, used uh, drug smuggling operations to create funds for the off books type stuff. Uh, So I do want to emphasize that because for me that I thought that was like, huh. I mean, obviously it could be coincidence, but for me, just a layman listening, that would kind of open my like, well, that's weird that he would bring that up, you know, Uh, and because if you're just making up some story, that'd be a weird story to make up because everyone would just be like, you're a crazy person. Whereas, you know, hearing it in today's context, you're just kind of like, oh, it's just some guy saying crazy shit. But at that time, I mean, I guess it still could have been someone saying crazy stuff, but it would have been extra crazy to say that given the context of the time, people being like, what are you talking about? Uh, Because, you know, today people would be like, well, there's something to that. He could just be latching on to a existing conspiracy theory or, or not conspiracy theory, conspiracy fact, essentially. Um, you know, uh, whereas at that time it it would be very kooky to people listening. Um, but yeah, I guess we can move from there, get into Strassmeyer and maybe, you know, in and out to, to, uh, thing, but I guess let's get into Strassmeyer now and I'll, I'll let you go on about him.
2: Sure, sure. And regarding uh, the drug thing, uh, though, he did, uh, yeah, he said that in the special operations meeting that he had, they were told they would be doing various things such as providing security for um, drug interdiction and drug uh, smuggling operations, uh, wh- which it, it's difficult to believe. I, I think uh, for me, it's. It, I find that to be really dubious. That you would have some sort of commander Uh, Just straight up telling you you're going to be smuggling drugs. But uh, ultimately, you know, this is what he said to his sister. So we'll take that for what it is, uh, whether he is uh, credible or not. Uh, You know, he's an unreliable source. However, we're going to find some things coming up here that will dovetail very well with that. And so... Uh, in terms of uh, Andy Strassmeyer, what we want to do here is is look at, in 1988, there was a sedition trial in the United States, and this was, a, uh, you had a group of about uh, 12 white supremacists and, and uh, terrorists who were tried for sedition in the United States, sedition and insurrection, basically. And uh, the DOJ uh, tried them all together and it's supposed to be this massive uh, trial. They're gonna lock away all of these leaders, all of these people, members of the order, Louis Beam, um, some of these big names. And uh, lo and behold, The federal government fails, and they are all acquitted. They're acquitted in the 88 sedition trial, and that only emboldened them. And so when that happened, the FBI knew uh, that they were going to have a major problem on their hands here in a few years because these people ideology doesn't die. And these people, are they're not in prison. They're going to continue what they're doing. And so they knew they were going to have another problem on their hands, just like they had with the order in the early 1980s. So as soon as the sedition trial is over in 1988, they start planning to open up their, FBI does start planning to open up their Patcon operation to infiltrate uh, the right wing and to infiltrate these white supremacist groups as well uh, in order to be able to have a, an asset in place when they start making plans again. And so while that's happening and they're starting up Pat con right after this sedition trial, Andy Strassmeyer gets a visa to come to the United States. To give you an idea who Andy Strassmeyer is, uh, he uh, basically is a person whose father was a member of parliament in Germany for many years. He was the chief of staff uh, for Helmut Kohl, which, who was basically the Germany's secretary of state, their equivalent of that. And he was also a minister of transportation. So his dad is this big shot politician. He's from uh, this uh, kind of a very affluent family, uh, prominent social connections, and he uh, himself, he, he, he uh, gets into the Bundeswehr, uh, the uh, German army. And in the uh, Bundeswehr, he's trained in counterintelligence. He was a uh, mortar fire control officer. Uh, he became uh, head of uh, the battalion's intelligence unit. And his job was basically to sniff out East German informants and spies. And so he's working in intelligence and in counterintelligence in the German army. Um, this is a person, Andy, who uh, speaks fluent German, fluent English, and fluent Hebrew. And he would take vacations to Israel he, where he'd stay on a kibbutz. Um, he did about two or three of those. On his second stint at a kibbutz in Israel, he actually was given an Uzi and put on security patrol with the IDF. Um, it's very interesting. Looks sort of like a cross-training type situation where you have this German soldier who is cross-training here with uh, friendly allied forces in Israel. Now, during his third stay at a kibbutz there, he was sent on patrol on the Green Line between Israel and the West Bank. This is, These are all things you can find in the excellent HarperCollins book uh, called Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed by Roger Charles. Uh, very well documented books, so these are uh, ironclad sources. So
1: did, wait, real quick, I do want yes. to point out just to clarify for the audience. So, especially if you pay attention to last episode, uh, especially the mainstream narrative or what was uh, you know told to us, and maybe it's true, maybe it's not. The 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 driving impetus behind um, behind uh, God, uh McVeigh was was the idea that Zog was going to essentially take over the world. Zion, Zionist, I forget, I forget what it's it yes, called. Basically exactly Zionist. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so it is, I actually didn't know there were, this is news to me, I didn't know there were Israel connections, although I guess I, I'm not shocked. Anyone who pays attention to these things, a lot of things always lead back to Israel or Saudi Arabia when it comes to anything foreign. I thought this was more contained. I knew there was a German aspect with Meyer. But uh, All right, that, 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 that piqued my interest, but it does make another interesting thing that the idea was the, the, the impetus was that they were worried about Zionism, and so they had to create this bad guy that you know killed people to be against Zionism. When anyone pays attention to foreign policy, I mean, this isn't even really overly political. There's a left, right. Anyone who pays attention realizes a lot of our issues do come from Zionism. And I don't mean Judaism. I mean Zionism. They're different things. Uh, so it is that does pique my interest for sure. But uh, I'm, once again, I'm not trying to insert my politics, but I do think it's important to note that uh, that's kind of interesting. You know, if you're getting into the conspiracy mindset, uh, that's weird. But uh, go on.
2: <laughs> there is definitely some uh, irony here, because what you are seeing is that, yes, Timothy McVeigh had a white supremacist ideology. He did believe that uh, he called government Zog or Zionist occupied government, and uh, he's hanging around with white supremacists. And uh, when Andy Strassmeyer comes to the United States, he is posing as a white supremacist. So I find it very interesting that this individual who is reporting to be uh, some type of Nazi uh, actually is vacationing in Israel, and he is going out on patrol with the IDF, and he speaks Hebrew, and so he obviously is not a neo-Nazi. And he obviously also is a counterintelligence officer. So clearly he was playing a role when he came to the United States. So what happened here is that... um, Strassmeyer in, uh, in 1988 or 89 that is he was issued an open-ended multiple entry visa for the United States and that's not a normal visa it's not the type of visa the tourist is issued this visa that he was issued had two special designations on it the letters a and o and if you look that up on the state department website what you'll find is that the letter a on a visa indicates that the individual is a diplomat or a foreign government official. The letter O indicates that this individual has extraordinary ability. And what you normally see is that if someone is like a uh, rocket scientist or working at Los Alamos National Laboratories or whatever, they're gonna have O on their visa, their designated extraordinary ability. I would argue also that someone who is a counterterrorism expert, Uh, who is working in that capacity, would also have extraordinary ability denoted on his visa. And I do believe that's exactly what happened here. So when he comes over to the United States, he stays with a man named Vincent Petruski. Vincent Petruski, is a or was it was a career uh, CIA clandestine services officer. He worked uh, for the CIA in Operation Phoenix in Vietnam, which is counterinsurgency. They were carrying out targeted assassinations, uh, bombings, mass shootings, and terrorism in order to create a strategy of tension to cause the Vietnamese people to overwhelmingly uh, bow at the feet of the government and say, please come save us from all of this terror. And so that is what Phoenix was, very similar to what Gladio was. And that's why we call some of this that we're seeing here in the United States domestic Gladio, because it is a similar strategy of tension. So what happens is he stays with... this is yes. actually
1: something I put in my notes uh, yes. from last episode. You mentioned domestic gladio, and I honestly had never heard of it. Can you take a second to explain what it is? I guess you kind of sorted it a little bit there, if you pick up context, but just take a minute to point that out because uh, I've never sure heard think. that. So sure, I'm sure. sure the, so. If I haven't, I'm sure the audience probably hasn't. So
2: yeah. So gladio was a program that was initiated after World War II, and what it was was uh, it was called stay behind networks, and what that really means is that in um, Various friendly countries, such as Italy, um, other countries in in Europe, um, we had uh, legions of operatives. These were uh, extremely right-wing operatives. A lot of them had fascist tendencies, and they were in the military, they were in government and uh, they uh, they basically worked for NATO and the Central Intelligence Agency, and their job and what they did in Operation Gladio is they would carry out acts of terrorism, such as a, bomb, a mass bombing that killed many civilians. They would carry out these acts of terrorism and these bombings, and they were false flags that they used to uh, blame on the communists and so what their goal was was to sow terror among the populace and so that the populace would number one uh, stop supporting the left because in italy uh, there was a big problem with the communist party getting a, a lot of uh, votes and a lot of support uh, at least it was considered a problem from some people's points of view and what they wanted to do was drive people away from that and to cause the populace to uh, be living in a state of terror so that they would want to see the security state uh, expanded and given everything they need in order to drive out uh, this uh, left-wing terrorism that we're seeing. And what it was was actually terrorism that was being carried out by the security services. That was Gladio. And Gladio basically, is almost identical to Operation Phoenix in Vietnam. Vietnam's uh, Phoenix was like Gladio for one country, right? Phoenix was in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos, and Gladio on the other hand was in Italy and other countries in Western Europe. And so they're the same things though. What it is, it's called a strategy of tension. It's where you do carry out bombings, mass shootings, terrorism, false flag, blame it on a certain group and cause the populace to become so terrorized that they welcome the security state coming in and spying on everybody and, you know, getting whatever they want in order to please stop all of this hell that's happening around us. And so that's that's what Gladio is, and uh, that's something that, that we'll probably revisit later as we look at what Andy Strassmeyer
1: was doing in the United States. So essentially like Operation Northwoods, uh, for because that's probably the most yes. popular one that, that people know of. Yes. So obviously that didn't go through. Uh, you know, Kennedy slapped it down and then Kennedy, you know, shortly died after. But uh, <laughs> we're not well, going in, there. <laughs> what's <laughs> but,
2: interesting is that the individual that came up with Operation Northwoods, uh, uh when he was fired from uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, where did he go? He was sent over to the Supreme Allied Headquarters of NATO. And Operation Gladio was ran out of that office. So the gentleman who who made Northwoods and came up with that uh, then went over to NATO where he presided over Gladio. So he essentially is doing the same thing in uh, in Western Europe that he was wanting to do in the United States uh, to uh, uh, to uh, help foment a war against Cuba.
1: OK, all right. Well, I did to throw you off. If you remember where you are, we'll keep moving. Yeah, uh,
2: <laughs> no, no worries. All right. And so when Strassmeyer comes to the United States, he stays with Vincent Petruski. Uh, this guy's CIA. And, uh, you know, like I said, he, he uh, was involved in in the Phoenix operation and uh, he was going to be in line for a high level position at the DEA if uh, George Herbert Walker Bush uh, became president in the 1988 uh, election. And what uh, what was going to happen here is Petrusky said that if um, Bush won the election, uh, Petrusky would be nominated for a high-level position at the DEA. And uh, what he wanted to do is he told Strassmeyer that, okay, if I get this job at the DEA, I'm going to be, um, I want to form a rejuvenated, and the, the quote, there's a quote from Roger's book, Oklahoma City, he said he wants to quote a or form a, quote, rejuvenated black ops crew, similar to the one that he operated during his CIA career. And so Petrusky would be getting this job at the DEA. He wants to then start uh, basically doing some things that are very similar to what he did in Operation Phoenix. And Strassmeyer is thinking he's going to get a job doing this when he comes over here. When he comes over, he does, uh, with the help of Petruski fire, uh, that is file a bunch of uh, applications with the DEA, with the FBI, with various federal agencies, uh, expecting this to happen. Well, what happens there is Bush is, uh, he does not uh, appoint Petruski to this job at the DEA. So it supposedly fell through. However, what happens next with Andy Strassmeyer is very interesting because it certainly looks like it did not fall through. As uh, Andy then decides to, uh, he he leaves his host, uh, uh, this, it's already suspicious, the guy's first person he's staying with is a CIA officer. Well, he leaves there and he goes down to Texas and he's handed off uh, from Petruski to an individual named Dave Holloway. Dave Holloway. Uh, was also a CIA clandestine services uh, officer and a pilot. Uh, He he flew for uh, Intermountain Aviation from 83 to 88, which was owned by Evergreen Aviation. That is a CIA front company. It uh, is a company involved with, uh, they they essentially have airlines uh, that they're using, much like Air America during Vietnam, where in a lot of these cases, these CIA front company airlines are doing things like Smuggling drugs. And so, um, Yeah, uh, he's handed off to this guy Holloway who has a shady background exactly like Petruski. And so Dave Holloway, um, in addition to being this former CIA pilot, is now uh, down in Texas where he has formed the Texas Light Infantry. And this is a citizen's militia that he's formed with Louis Beam, a very well-known violent uh, white supremacist. And uh, they have this militia there and Strassmeyer shows up at the militia. And he is, this is the first time in which we find that that uh, Strassmeyer and Timothy McVeigh cross paths. Uh, Andy Strassmeyer is down there, and he's helping with the militia training at the Texas Light Infantry. And uh, McVeigh was spotted with him by uh, an FBI PATCON operative uh, named John Matthews. Uh, Pat Kahn decided, I guess, to target the Texas Light Infantry. They thought that they were a very threatening organization. They had all these arms. It's a militia. They're threatening FBI agents. So they, um, Pat PatCon did then target the uh, Texas Light Infantry. And so this uh, agent, Matthews, is sent in, and he reported to his handler, Don Jarrett, uh, that uh, as soon as he saw McVeigh on television when the bombing happened, he said, yeah, I saw him down there at the uh, TLI Ranch in San Saba, Texas. He was down there with uh, a German guy named Andy. And they were training guys on weapons and they had a whole bunch of stolen ammunition that had come in from Fort Hood, uh, which that also was a part of the PATCON operation. They were targeting a network that was stealing uh, equipment and firearms and ammunition from military bases. And so this is really the the nexus where you find that uh, Strassmeyer and uh, McVeigh are spotted for the first time. And that was reported upon by a great reporter named R.M. Schneiderman. He worked for Newsweek and he did a story for Newsweek called I Was an Undercover White Supremacist. And uh, in that story, he interviewed John Matthews, who was the undercover white supremacist. And he talked uh, about uh, Matthews saying that he had seen... Uh, um, McVeigh there, and he'd reported it to his handlers. And his handlers just told him, don't worry about it. We know about it. So anyhow, uh, back to what's going on here at Texas Light Infantry with Strassmeyer. He's down there, and he is very much advocating for violence against the federal government. And the people within Texas Light Infantry begin to get very suspicious of him. He looks a lot like a glowy. He's acting like a glowy. And so they decide they're going to follow him. And they follow him to a federal building uh, at, uh, at night. And what they see is that Andy Strassmeyer goes to this federal building and he enters the federal building using a keypad on the uh, building. And they see him go in, and th- that pretty much sealed his fate. They, at that point, thought okay, our suspicions are confirmed. This guy is definitely some sort of provocateur. And he is then kicked out of the Texas Light Infantry. Now that whole time that he's down there with TLI, uh, he is receiving $2,000 a month from the CIA pilot, Dave Holloway. That's how he's getting paid. That's how he's living and supporting himself. So you could say Andy Strassmeyer is being funded by the Central Intelligence Agency while he is working uh, at TLI. And what he's doing at TLI looks a lot like uh, what you would see or expect from uh, Phoenix or domestic gladio, as we call it. And so th- that's worth where, where they the, the first cross paths. And so um, this is about 92, I think, when he's kicked out of TLI. And what does he do then? He, uh, he goes to Elohim City and that is a, a compound in northern Oklahoma on the border with Missouri, and you have a great deal of racial separatists who are living there, and they are white supremacists for the most part, and a lot of them are violent, um, but once Andy Strassmeyer got there, they became a lot more violent. Uh, what he did is when he arrived at Elohim City, he appointed himself as security director for the compound. Uh, he uh, immediately replaced all of the hunting rifles uh, with automatic weapons um, they had something like 300 uh what uh, a um, 300 uh, different types of automatic weapons there on the property one of them was a uh they were talking about was it a mac 10 they had mac tens and they had skss and some other things but so that's That's really kind of a a red flag right off the bat, just like it was when he was down there with with, uh, TLI. And so uh, at uh, Elohim City uh, around uh, February of 1992, uh, is in a vehicle with a gentleman named Pete Ward who lives at Elohim City and they get pulled over. And when they're pulled over, uh, the car is impounded uh, because they they have no uh, tag on the vehicle and when it's impounded um, the uh, law enforcement finds a a briefcase in the vehicle and they take a look at it this is andy's briefcase in that briefcase they find a book called the terrorist handbook and they also find uh, an envelope that was addressed to strassmeyer from his first cia contact vincent petruski with some documents in it and the documents in there were in german and a later investigation determined that these were documents relating to the purchase of 747 airliners from the German um, aviation company Lufthansa. And evidently what happened here is that Strassmeyer was attempting to uh, purchase from Lufthansa some of these used 747s for what was uh, quoted at that time as a retired CIA official. And investigation revealed that the purchase was to be for a uh, an airline that was called Evergreen. And Evergreen is a very well-known Uh, CIA front company, CIA front airline, and so
1: real quick, let me. I want to interject just for just so people know. I don't know how much significance this has, but Lufthansa raised. I was active duty military for eleven years, and when I deployed, I went. One of the ones I went was Lufthansa, so I'm pretty sure. I would assume since they that was like one they set me up on for you know setting up for deployments. There is government connections. So just. Just to add in a little bit of context, so people you know maybe there is some difference. Maybe that's just anecdotal. I don't. know. Maybe it's just a happenstance. I, I don't know. But there, I, I, that did that was interesting to me. But go on. Sorry.
2: Yeah, no problem. That's, yeah, you're absolutely right. Lufthansa is Germany's premier uh, aviation uh, manufacturer, and so uh, what what was happening here is Andy's uh, uh, his dad was transportation minister in Germany. And so it was thought that because his father was the Minister of Transportation, um, that might help uh, obtain a purchase of these 747s for this CIA front company. And of course, uh, uh, when you see this, you think back to what, um, what Petrusky uh, said, which was that he wanted to um, uh, form a rejuvenated black ops crew doing drug interdiction like he had uh, and doing uh, some operations like he had done during his cia career and you think what's going on here is he wanting to buy these airliners for uh, drug smuggling something like that who knows but ultimately it's very weird uh, you've got a guy here who is at this uh, neo-nazi compound he's pretending himself to be a neo-nazi and meanwhile he has documents in his vehicle regarding the purchase of multi-million dollar aircraft for a CIA front company. And so what happens next is even weirder. The vehicle was impounded, and when it was impounded, uh, phone calls started coming in uh, to, uh, to the police there. Uh, they had phone calls from a high-powered lawyer in Houston, uh, a general or a major in North Carolina, which is where Fort Bragg and Special Forces are located, placed a phone call to them, um, basically say, hey, you gotta let this, you know, You got to get rid of this vehicle. You need to let this guy go. Ultimately, they received a phone call from Governor Frank Keating's office as well. And they received a phone call from someone who identified themselves as being with the State Department. And what's interesting is that uh, typically um, clandestine CIA officers, um, one of their biggest cover uh, when they talk to people is they'll identify themselves as being with the State Department that's regular procedure for them so whether or not this was actually cia or not we don't know but anyway the person contacting said they're from the state department and the bottom line is all these people are screaming you have got to let this guy go he is a diplomat he has diplomatic community. uh so obviously he has friends in high places and so Uh, They let him out. They let him out of there. The next thing he does, as soon as he gets out, Andy gets himself a social security number in the United States. Somehow he gets himself issued a social security number. And using that, he is able to get a Tennessee driver's license. Um, There's an address uh, for a home in Tennessee, which was being rented uh, for him so he could falsely establish residency. Meanwhile, he never lived there or stayed there once. And so who's paying for that? You know, obviously, it looks like you're, this is a scheme by which you're going to allow this gentleman to get himself legitimate identity papers. And he's obviously sponsored by someone. He's getting these $2,000 checks from a CIA pilot. He's got people of the State Department calling to get him out of jail. He all of a sudden now has a social security number and a driver's license. All of it very much does not make any sense. And remember, during the day, this guy is pretending that he is this neo-Nazi and uh, clearly from the facts we're discussing, you can tell he is i uh, have some sort of agent or informant, not a neo-Nazi, uh, much less, you know, one who speaks Hebrew. You don't see that too often. So um, when he's down there at uh, Elohim City, uh, like I said, he replaced all the deer rifles with automatic weapons. Um, he uh, was training platoon-sized groups about every three months. There were Nazis coming in from all over the United States. Um, They'd go to stay at Elohim City. It was known as kind of a safe haven. Some of these people were like bank robbers and so forth. And they would go and they'd stay there. And while they were there, they'd get Andy Strassmeyer's training. And he would train them in groups on firearms, weapons. And he was always during this training indoctrinating people. He was emphasizing the need to strike at the government, the need to take action. He was actually advocating for three things, according to an ATF informant. He was advocating for assassinations bombings, and mass shootings. Now, if you go back again and look at what Vincent Petruski was doing in Operation Phoenix and what the people were doing in Gladio in Western Europe, exactly that. Same thing. They are advocating terrorism, assassinations, bombings, mass shootings. Now you have Strassmeyer down here in LOM City and he's doing exactly the same thing. So it looks very much like he is, in fact, working in this rejuvenated black ops crew that Petrusky said that he wanted to set up. Petruski is no longer involved at this point, but Strassmeyer is down here and he has the CIA sponsors like Holloway instead. And he is behaving in a way that should raise an eyebrow. And so our second meeting with Timothy McVeigh between McVeigh and Strassmeyer comes up here next in our timeline. And so it's in 1993, Strassmeyer is at Elohim City and uh, he goes to a gun show with some other folks at at Elohim City where he meets Timothy McVeigh again. And at the gun show, uh, he sells McVeigh a knife and he purchases from McVeigh his uh, Desert Storm BDUs complete with his McVeigh name tag on it. Uh, he bought that from McVeigh and actually in 96, 97, when the investigation was going on, Andy Strassmeyer had hanging up in his closet, these BDUs with McVeigh's name tag on them. It's Real just, quick. Blows uh, you, your
1: mentioned, mind. you mentioned earlier Fort Bragg and I feel like this is the appropriate time since you're mentioning the connections yes. and there were people calling from Fort Bragg for uh, Strassmeyer to get him out of prison. I yes. do think it's important to mention in the Corbett uh, report video on who is Timothy McVeigh, I thought it was very interesting. I watched a little video. Uh, there was, and this was supposed to be a, a, a sort of confirmation of the fact that uh, McVeigh was sheet dipped or that he you know, was still in the military while he was no longer technically in the military. Uh, I know there was, I think it was about two years after, there was a video of some person who was doing some sort of documentary or some shit. At uh, Fort Bragg, I believe it was, because uh, that's what kind of you know reminded me of it when you brought Fort Bragg. Uh, and there is a video. If you go to the court report, you can find it. You can watch this thing. And there's a video of a person who looks just like Timothy McVeigh. Although, albeit, I'll, I'll I will say Timothy McVeigh has one of those faces. It's just like you know, pretty kind of like an everyman face, like even your face. Like I could almost be like eh, kind of close. Like it's a very you know generic looking kind of face, but. You know, I guess on top of that, there was the guy videoed him. He just so happened to accidentally walk upon him. And the guy was like, this dude's Timothy McVeigh. There's a video of it. He talked to him and someone did a voice match. And said so it was like an 86% match. I guess I, I, mean, I don't know if you're familiar with that. Because I, I mean, that's not the greatest confirmation, but I did find it was interesting. If you watch the video, the face does look very much like Timothy McVeigh, like a, a younger Timothy McVeigh. And it's supposed to be two years after he supposedly got in the military. It's him at Fort Bragg. Doing like an ex, uh, I guess like a, which is known for like explosive training, uh, kind of like that's the place you go for that. Uh, I, so I guess that might be. I, I think there's some sort of connection here. I, I guess I want to get your thoughts. What, what are your thoughts on that? Is that? I mean, obviously, I, I don't think it's the greatest confirmation because Timothy V does one of those faces that kind of is like an every man's face. But I mean, apparently, there's an a 6 percent voice match. The person who who I guess uh, the person who did the voice match said that he would he was like an expert in the field and he said he would have tested it in court if it came to it. Uh, I guess I want to get your thoughts on that. Cause it is kind of one of those like backing up things to kind of be like, Hey, there's, there's more to back up the fact that he's sheep dip than just trust me, bro.
2: Right. That was a very interesting case. And there was an investigation that was done on that by uh, Wendy painting and Holland Van den Vandenewenhoff when that came out, uh, it was a videotape that was filmed by a guy named Bill Bean and uh I believe that researchers were misled in this case. And on the last episode, when I mentioned there was something in, in one of uh, Corbett's videos that I felt was incorrect, um, that is what I was referring to, actually. What you're seeing there is you do see a soldier who is a parts clerk who is parking like a Bradley vehicle, something like that. And uh, Bill Bean claimed that this soldier was Tim McVeigh. and the issue with it is two, two is twofold firstly with the voice match um wendy painting and holland van den Neuenhoff reached out to the guy that bill bean used to do this voice match and what they found out is that he actually did not uh did not uh, proclaim it to be a match and okay. bill bean evidently told people that it was a match uh, and so if you take his word for it, well, sure, you could say it's a match, but it seems that he misled people with that. Now, the main issue I had is I've seen pretty much every photograph of Timothy McVeigh. And the main issue I had is when you look at the gentleman in the uh, the video, um, there are some problems and it, they're kind of uh, camouflaged by the fact that he's wearing a hat and um, because if you weren't, you could see the the issue with his hair is is uh, it was very very dark brown. His eyebrows are the wrong color. Uh, Tim McVeigh had very very uh, blonde, light blonde hair, and uh, the gentleman in that video uh, had the wrong eyebrows are the wrong color. Some of the other features are, are wrong, and so the bottom line is I do not think that that. Was Timothy McVeigh? Um, I do put faith in in Wendy's investigation of that, and it's easy for a person to um, I think get taken in if the person who is advocating this, Bill Bean, is being dishonest about it. We don't have a, a way to know that, right? You know, we just take his word for it, and, yeah. and it sounds pretty good. Um, I think it's one of those cases where you can um, end up going down the wrong path, and That's probably what happened and i think anybody who covered that it was an honest mistake on their part and i don't i don't fault james corbett uh, for putting that in his video um that's something that a lot of people bring up and it's just unfortunately i don't think that it's him but i also don't think that that means that uh, any of the things we're saying regarding what he might have been doing are inaccurate you know that just uh, it just happens to be that it's not him. And all these other things we're saying could still very well have been happening.
1: Good. I, I wanted to get your take on it. Cause it was, to me, it wasn't like ultra convincing, but it was interesting. It was yeah. so, cause like Timothy Vay has a very generic looking face and the, you know, so to look like him and the 86% voice match, although you're saying there was more to it. I mean, that is kind of one of those things where it's like, uh, I don't know. 86%. What is that? I don't know when it comes to voice match. I don't know what the technology was at the time. But yeah, well, it I, sounds I didn't really it was, impressive.
2: Yeah. 86%. Hey, that's very close, Yeah. you know, but, you know, uh, when, 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 when do you talk to the guy who did the voice match? He said, no, it's not, it wasn't a match at all. And so the problem here is Bill Bean was lying about it. I think he was probably trying to sell, sell that video to get, you know, to get some money. And that's a common issue you run into in this research is you have to do your due, due diligence because you are going to run into bad actors from time to time who might be putting out false information you know so
1: and i'm I'm glad i brought it up here because i i do want to make sure like i uh, although i mean we were talking before i i love to entertain crazy conspiracy theories just because it's fun uh although i i I don't always buy into it i'll entertain it to kind of like for fun but uh i i want to make sure to make a point that uh i don't want to if we bring up kook things because although i i think we'll bring up at some point later uh, whether it's this episode or later, the theory that, you know, whether Timothy McVeigh actually died or not. And we get into, like, weird coop territory. I want to be sure that we're being clear that, like, hey, this isn't too super. I want to make sure. I, I want this to be the ultimate resource or one of the better resources to go through for this place. And I want to make sure we're being thorough. And it seems to be you are. So I'm glad you actually shot that down. That way people can be like, hey, we're not just, you know, buying hook, line, sinker, every little thing. Because, I mean, there are things that are interesting. And, I, and, and you know, I, I didn't. I didn't take that hook, line, and sinker either, but I just thought it was interesting and it was worth bringing up. I'm glad you slapped it down and kind of provided greater context. But I'll let you go on. You brought up to, you know, if you don't know where you were at, I know you're bringing up the fact that he had Timothy McVeigh's BDUs in his uh, closet, but go on.
2: Right, right. Absolutely. So that is the second time uh, that we know of that uh, Strassmeyer and McVeigh met one another with the first time being at the Texas Light Infantry Ranch in Texas in 91 or 92. And now we hear we have him in 93. They've met at a gun show at the gun show. He also Strassmeyer also gives uh, a business card for Elohim City uh, to. uh, uh, to McVeigh, And on that business card, it has the directions on how to get to Elohim City, and it has their phone number and uh, just basically whatever you need in order to, to get there. And so that is the only time uh, in which uh, uh, Strassmeyer is admitted to having met McVeigh. As he says, well, I think we met once at a gun show, uh, but I don't believe he's being totally forthcoming about that based upon what we know about some of these other meetings. So Anyhow, uh, while he's there at Elohim City and he has met McVeigh, you also have other sources who are saying, well, uh, while Strassmeyer was serving as head of security there, we know that Timothy McVeigh visited Elohim City 15 to 20 times. You have Morris Dees, who was the head of the Southern Poverty Law Center, who uh, was quoted uh saying uh that timothy mc uh, due to uh, morrissey's had informants in the spLC that were at elohim city and he said from their informants they said mcveigh had visited 15 to 20 times in addition to that you also have bill buford who is the atf chief in arkansas and he was briefed both uh, verbally and with written records um that put mcveigh at elohim city And so in addition to those two, you have a a third uh, bit of information, which is an informant named John Schultz. And John Schultz puts McVeigh and Strassmeyer together at Elohim City in the fall of 1994. Schultz was there when there was a meeting. It was a meeting of a group of about eight to 10 people chaired and directed by Andy Strassmeyer, where they were talking about the delivery of a... uh, Uh, they were calling it a delivery of a package, and they were planning something, he said, and it was very uh, kind of secretive. And the idea here is that we think that the uh, bombing operation was planned out of Elohim City in the fall of 94, and that Andy Strassmeyer was in a leadership role in designing uh, the bombing operation and that uh, Tim McVeigh was in an equal leadership role to carry out the operational parts of the bombing uh, with Strassmeyer being the person who's sort of a provocateur. He's being a glowy here. He is uh, uh, provoking uh, violence. And so um, at the same time that all this is going on, the ATF has an informant at Elohim City, and her name is Carol Howe. And in 1994, Carol Howe is undercover at Elohim City in late 94, in the fall, around the same time that Schultz uh, heard and and saw this meeting. Um, And she said that at that time, uh, Strassmeyer was talking about, um, all he wanted to talk about was bombing a federal building. And what you have here is uh, him, in fact, casing the Murrah federal building with a man named Dennis Mahan. Dennis Mahan was leader of a group called White Aryan Resistance. He's now currently serving a prison sentence for sending a mail bomb to someone and blowing his hand off in Arizona. And so he very much was a terrorist. And uh, so you've got Strassmeyer and Dennis Mahan. They are uh, casing the Murrah building, and Strassmeyer is having meetings where McVeigh is present, and he's talking about um, bombing federal buildings. And so the leading theory really is then that uh, the bombing was planned in the fall of 94. And some of the other people present in that meeting of eight to 10 people, we believe, were members of the Aryan Republican Army. This is a group that we briefly touched on. And uh, it's important to note that Andy Strassmeyer's roommate at Elohim City, the person you know he stayed with, was a member of the Aryan Republican Army, Michael Brescia. And so Michael Brescia and Strassmeyer are roommates at Elohim City. And this leads us to our third encounter with uh, Timothy McVeigh and Andy Strassmeyer. And that is in April, early April of 1995. Um, what happens here is uh, Timothy McVeigh, Michael Brescia, and Andy Strassmeyer. Visit a strip club in Tulsa, Oklahoma, called Lady Godiva's. And at this strip club, there is a surveillance camera that is mounted uh, in the uh, dresser. Uh, that is the uh, uh, the dancers' changing room, and uh, that was put there to to uh, cut down on on theft, that sort of thing. Uh, the owner of the place is reviewing the surveillance footage. Uh, because there was a fight among some of his dancers that uh, that night. So he's reviewing the footage and he comes upon something that he found was really interesting. And this is um, something that has been aired on national television on uh, Canada's version of 60 Minutes. They have a program called The Fifth Estate and it it's also in some documentaries. So what it is, is it's footage of one of the dancers walking up to another dancer in, um, in the... Uh, 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 the changing room that night, around April, I think it was April 7th of uh, 1995. And what she says is, there's a really weird guy out there. You know, he uh, he's telling me he he tells me I'm a really smart man. And I go, you are. And he goes, yeah, I am. And on April 19th, 1995, you're gonna remember me for the rest of your life. And that's right there on the video. It was recorded April 7th before the bombing dancer says, this guy said on April 19th, you're going to remember me for the rest of your life. So that might not be much, but for the simple fact that, that the people who are out there and who said that were identified by the dancers as Timothy McVeigh, Andy Strassmeyer, and Michael Brescia. They identified them from photos. You have multiple dancers, and I have the FBI 302 reports from this. And I have uh, the newspaper clippings. Uh, you've got the Washington Post uh, report by Peter Carlson talking about it. You've got J.D. Cash writing about it. And what happened here is they were shown a photo spread, including Andy Strassmeyer. and they said, "Yep, that he he was the quiet guy. He was the guy with the German accent." They pointed out Michael Brescia, and they said, "Yep, he's the guy who had uh, who had all the money. He had a big wad, hundred dollar bills. He was talking to all the girls." Uh, He was the, they considered him to be the good looking guy. And uh, Tim McVeigh, uh, they also identified. And so this here, to me, looks like they are out celebrating. It's about a week or two before the bombing. Uh, McVeigh is talking about it to one of the dancers, what are the chances then, if he's talking about it to a complete stranger, or at least making a reference to it or alluding to it, uh, chances are good he's gonna be talking about that with his companions that night. And that's what I think it was. I think they were celebrating because they had already obtained all of the bomb ingredients. The plan was in action. There was only a couple weeks away. They were on their way to carrying out this operation and they were celebrating. And so, That right there shows we we have several times in which Andy Strassmeyer and Timothy McVeigh have met uh, met one another, and it looks very much like Strassmeyer was in a a leadership position where he's advocating for violence, and he's a provocateur, exactly like you see in the Gretchen Whitmer plot, where you have these FBI agents who they are pushing the plot along, they're being the ones who are the most aggressive, calling for violence, and that's exactly what uh, Strassmeyer is doing. So uh, what I'd said uh, a moment ago is that at the same time, we had uh, ATF informant Carol Howe at Elohim City. And she um, her reports to her ATF handler caused the ATF to want to uh, raid Elohim City, and they wanted to arrest Andy Strassmeyer. They felt that uh, he was a terrorist based upon the things he was saying. They're, you know they think this guy is dangerous and so um, they in the fall of 94 and then in january and february of 95 they are coordinating to prepare to arrest strassmeyer the atf and the ins are coordinating Uh, they're working with the ins to ensure that ins will be present when the atf does the raid so that they can take him into custody for um, being here illegally uh, the ATF also notifies the Highway Patrol to put out a bolo or be on the lookout for Strassmeyer. Um, uh, the ATF agents who are spearheading this operation would be Carol Howes Handler and Angela Finley Graham, and the special agent in charge of the Dallas ATF office, a gentleman named Tom Whitman. And so, uh, in preparation for this raid. Uh, Tom Whitman, uh, Angela Finley, and an ATF photographer, um, they hitch a ride uh, with a highway patrol pilot named Ken Stafford, and he takes them up to do surveillance of the compound. Um, they're going up there to look and see, you know, is uh, what, what does it look like? Do they have barbed wire? Do they have uh, re- reinforced areas? You know, are they in a war posture? What's going on? So, They go up there to do that, and while they're doing that, Ken Stafford, the pilot, uh, tells the ATF folks, "Um, you know, it's interesting, I just took some FBI guys up here a couple weeks ago. And that got the ATF to thinking, and they're thinking, oh, that's really interesting, I wonder what the FBI is doing up here. And based upon what happens next, it looks a lot like the ATF, or that is to say, the FBI had their own operation going on at Elohim City. And that's why they were also up there doing surveillance on it. Because what happened next here is that um, after the ATF surveillance flight, all of a sudden, uh, Robert Millar, who is the uh, spiritual leader at Elohim City, he somehow becomes aware that there's an impending raid. And Robert Millar, uh, he's, he was also an FBI informant. He talked to Bob Ricks on the phone once a week. And he basically had a great relationship with the FBI. And it sounds a lot like he was kind of shining them on in order to make sure that his compound doesn't get raided and he's pretending like he's cooperating, but really he's not. But what happens here is that um, Robert Millar finds out that there's gonna be a raid by the ATF. And uh, more importantly, the FBI finds out that the ATF is planning a raid and that causes some major problems. Uh, When word gets to Bob Ricks, the special agent in charge of the FBI in Oklahoma City, that the ATF is going to do a raid, he puts an immediate halt to it. He has the assistant US attorney uh, meet with ATF officials in Tulsa, and he tells them in no uncertain terms that there will not be any raid um, that you are to stand down and you were to stop, in fact, all investigation at Elohim City. And when I look at that uh, critically thinking, I think that, well, what's happening here is that, that this is a turf war, the ATF, or that is to say the FBI has an ongoing operation there. That's why they were up in the surveillance flight. That's why they want the ATF to stop because whatever the ATF is doing here is encroaching on their operation, which I believe was probably related to PATCON. So uh, ultimately this uh, ATF raid is canceled. And uh, I believe that had the ATF raid actually happened and, and Strassmeyer would have been taken into custody, that might very well have prevented the Oklahoma City bombing from happening. And uh, ATF uh, director himself even even admitted that and said that. And so it um, got a lot of things happening here. Um, uh, this possible raid, Uh, Strassmeyer meeting uh, with McVeigh multiple times, and um, what we have next here is that um, right after the Oklahoma City bombing occurs, um, you have immediate focus on Elohim City. On April 27th, um, an FBI agent in Oklahoma City uh, sends the legal attache in Bonn, Germany, a request for additional information on Andreas Strassmeier. The following day on April 28th, the U.S. Embassy in Bonn, Germany, issues a memo to the Secretary of State uh, saying that Andy Strassmeier is a subject of investigation Uh, into the Oklahoma City bombing. And what's very interesting later is the prosecutors uh, falsely assert that Andy Strassmeyer was never the subject of uh, the investigation. And the FBI says the same thing. But documents prove otherwise. You have these April 27th and 28th documents that show that just within a week of the bombing, he is considered a key suspect in the case. And so as the, uh, the investigation goes on um, and the trial proceeds, um, Andy Strassmeyer is seeing, I think probably, and is probably hearing from his sources uh, that he is considered a suspect. So he decides to hightail it out of the country. And what happens here is that uh, Strassmeyer, in early 1996, He flees the United States with the help of Dave Holloway. This is the CIA pilot who was paying Andy Strassmeyer while he was uh, working to infiltrate Texas Light Infantry. And so he goes to his CIA buddy. And what happens here is that uh, Dave Holloway uh, drives him to Laredo, Texas, where he um, he puts him in a CIA safe house. Um, while they're at the CIA safe house, he arranges for a friendly media interview. And what he does is he calls in someone to throw Andy some softball questions, a man named Rick Sherrow. And Rick Sherrow is, wouldn't you know it, also a CIA officer. And so Rick Sherrow uh, from Soldier of Fortune worked for the CIA in Angola. And he, he's the first person uh, to be granted an interview
1: with Andy Strassmeyer as Andy is fleeing the country uh, and real, so after, real quick yeah. I want I want to back up because I do remember uh, there was a uh, supposed eyewitness report of someone who looked like Strassmeyer supposedly with an other individual planning uh, or putting these putty like things on uh, on the Mara building. Uh, which would make it seem like they were planning, you know, explosive charges or, or what have you. I don't know what your thoughts are. I want to kind of get your, because, you know, the, the big thing with the Oklahoma City bombing was the idea that the, you know, the Ryder truck, uh, you know, explosive bomb was not enough to do the whole trick. And, the, you know, it's the kind of same thing with the 9-11. A lot of people think there were additional charges. I'm not trying to go down that wormhole. But, you know, it's the same idea here that someone, you know, planted additional, you know, charges, and that was the only way they could really take, down the building. So I want to get your thoughts, because, I mean, if there is something to that, I don't know if there's, maybe there's more additional things other than eyewitness. I don't know. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll let you go here.
2: Sure. So one thing to note uh, before I go into that is that uh, in the um, Operation Gladio over in, in Italy, um, they did multiple terrorist bombings. And, and what they had there is they actually had military grade C-4, and they used this C-4 to carry out these bombings. And if we were to consider the Oklahoma City bombing, a uh, domestic Gladio operation, uh, where you have an actual legitimate terrorist, Timothy McVeigh, who is carrying out a terror operation, but at the same time, his partner in the terror operation is a, uh, a government provocateur, um, you could classify that as domestic gladio. And what I wanna say there is that that doesn't mean that that, that Timothy McVeigh is uh, not responsible for this. He absolutely was. But uh, if you have a guy next to you who is provoking you and pushing you along to do it, um, there needs to be answers for that. And so in terms though of the C4, um, What you're seeing here is that uh, there are two witnesses, actually, who I think are very good witnesses uh, to seeing this. Uh, The first one, her name is Jane Graham. She worked in the Murrah building, and she did see three people in the parking garage of the Murrah building who had uh, putty. They had wires. They had plans of the building. They were wearing overalls. They were in discussion. They were working in the parking garage about a week before the uh, bombing. And it does sound a lot like people who are putting explosives in the building. That's what it sounds, and that's what it looks like. And uh, in her 302 report, her story is not uh, changed between that and 1996 and 97 when she filed a video affidavit. She filed a written affidavit. Same exact story that appears in the 302 report. However, she did go on the Alex Jones program, I think around 2010, and what she did is she then identified one of the men she saw in the garage as Andy Strassmeyer. And here's where I have an issue, because I believe that she probably was heavily influenced by alternative media reports and by Alex Jones to say that this person was Andy uh, Strassmeyer simply because uh, her story never changed up until that point. But once she gets on Alex Jones, now all of a sudden her memory is better and she is identifying this person. And I have reason to be uh, skeptical of that. Now, having said that, that uh, does not mean that I doubt her testimony. I think she did see these three people in this garage, like she said she did, because we have a corroborating eyewitness. We have a witness named Ruth Schwab, who also worked in the Murrah building, and she saw the exact same thing. And she was interviewed by Wendy Painting. And so both of these women have no, no reason to lie about this. They were victims of the bombing. They reported this to the FBI. Uh, They've been honest about it. They have no skin in the game. They're not trying to sell a book, nothing like that. Um, But when it comes to identifying that one of those people is Andy Strassmeyer, I am hesitant to buy into that just because her story changed. But I have to stress that doesn't mean that I believe he wasn't involved or anything like that. I think it might be she might have been influenced. And just because I have a, maybe I'm biased I have kind of a, a natural aversion for Alex Jones and uh, uh, so that that's kind of what I think about that
1: well that's a fair way to put it too I mean I mean if they say they saw people putting putty like things that doesn't mean it, it, that didn't happen just it's not we can't completely rely on the fact that it was strassmeyer because i mean we got to be fair with how we do sources because although like i said before i do like to you know kind of wade into fun conspiracies just to entertain them but you do also have to be fair in how you're uh, evaluating your sources too because i mean the other day like i mean i want to do more stuff like this in the future more like conspiracy stuff but like real conspiracy stuff stuff that has sources to back it up and, and don't me wrong I mean, you know, whatever maybe I might go into kooky stuff but I will definitely always caveat it with hey this is very you know out there and very not well supported but uh, so it's good that you're doing that I do want to address a super chat real quick I'm not quite sure the context here the religion, religion was spooky back then Reno was just following orders I don't know what you mean by the re- religion aspect I don't know maybe, but I'm obviously Reno I'm assuming Janet Reno I don't know right. there's a lot that's a whole wormhole when I go down it but thank you for the super chat Dry Wahoo. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. If not, whatever. I see you in the chat, Justin. Uh, I think you should go back and watch episode one and this episode, and I think you'll realize what an idiot you are and if we've addressed it before. I like you, Justin, but uh, you're a silly goose to say, uh, Justin, or that uh, at least Timothy Bay did something. The whole point here is that maybe he was a glowy. And, uh, the whole point is that people like you that said at least he did something is to villainize people like you. We think at least he did something. So, yeah, uh, I think you're on, way off here, um, you know. But whatever. Uh, but if I don't know if you want to address that. If not, we'll we'll keep moving.
2: Right. Well, you know, he did do something. He he yeah. murdered 168 yeah. people, including children, and he completely, uh, c- uh, completely impeached and discredited the militia movement, which at that time in our country was a very powerful movement that drew together. Americans from all over the country who were completely against things like Waco and Ruby Ridge, and they were being reasonable about it and doing what the second amendment tells us to do, which is to form a well-regulated militia. And they were doing that. And unfortunately, what happened here is when Timothy McVeigh did this overnight, he discredited the entire militia movement, uh, instantly, Oh, you disagree with Waco? You're McVeigh. Um, oh, you're in the militia, you're McVeigh. When, of course, the vast majority of people who were in militias were not McVeigh, did not believe in murdering people, did not believe in murdering children, and wanted to simply defend their rights and their local communities, which I strongly support uh, people defending their local communities and working together. And this destroyed the militia movement. And it's no surprise, actually, if you go back and look, a uh, comment was made by the former director of the Central Intelligence Agency, a man named Bill Colby. In 1995, Bill Colby was talking to a friend of his named John DeCamp. He was a senator, and he was telling John DeCamp how the biggest threat in the country uh, coming forward in the 90s was the militia and patriot movement. He said that they were a massive threat to the establishment and the threat to uh, Intelligence agencies, similar to the threat posed by anti-Vietnam War activists in the 70s. And so I find it interesting that the director of the CIA said that. And then in less than a year, the entire militia movement was neutralized by the actions of Timothy McVeigh. So you've got a glowy and you've got a provocateur carrying out an action that neutralizes the number one threat, according to. to the former director of the CIA, Bill Colby. And as we've discussed here, the people involved in this, uh, we have uh, intelligence figures, uh, Strassmeyer coming over here, first person he sees, CIA. Last person he sees when he leaves the country, CIA. First journalist he talks to, CIA. I think all of that is significant. That's not a coincidence. Uh, There's something clearly going on there. And when you go and you look at the uh, the, the government documents uh, the CIA is withholding um, that are on that Vaughn index that, that uh, Jesse Trinidad obtained, um, you go and you can read the summaries as to what some of these documents are about. And it becomes very clear that the intelligence agencies had sources and methods that were providing them with direct information about the bombing. And... Uh, uh, just to paraphrase what Jesse Trinity said is he believes that this bond index shows that uh, Andy Strassmeyer was working for intelligence and that he is the person that is talked about in those documents that is redacted, that they're redacted and being withheld right now, that it's obviously him. I tend to agree with that.
1: All right. Uh, well, to put you back on track, uh, last where we were at was he was getting the softball, uh, you know, uh, journalist type stuff from some CIA operative. Uh, I don't know if you have anything more on that. Uh, if, if so, I'll let you go uh, or I'll let you keep going. If not,
2: yeah. Yeah. So, this journalist, um, so called journalist for Soldier of Fortune, which is a CIA rag any, anyway, it's, you know, but uh, his name is Rick Sherrow and he worked in the 1980s for the CIA in Angola. And he also uh, then worked later for the bomb squad with the ATF. And so, what Rick Shero does in this interview is he throws them a lot of softball questions, very friendly interview, and it's published, uh, or actually, um, yeah, he, he does the interview, but he later only uses parts of it. and does not publish the full interview, but what he does do for Soldier of Fortune magazine is he puts out, uh, one of the very first articles debunking certain things. It was called, uh, Uh, bombast, bomb blast, and BS or something like that. And uh, what he uh, basically is doing in this article is debunking the idea uh, that there could be any kind of alternative explanation for the uh, damage to the Murrah building. However, he's not saying in the article, oh, it was it, it wasn't explosives. What he's doing instead is saying, oh, it was not a thermobaric bomb. It wasn't a, you know, he's naming all these exotic technologies that no reasonable person is even suggesting are being used. Um, and so he he's got this kind of propaganda article in Soldier of Fortune. And uh, he's really kind of a shady figure. And uh, this is a person introduced to Strassmeyer uh, through Dave Holloway, which it seems to me Holloway was his paymaster. He was the guy who was paying Andy Strassmeyer $2,000 a month when he was staying in the United States. And anyway, so after this interview with Chero, uh, um, they catch a flight from Laredo to Acapulco in Mexico. And then they uh, board an Air France flight uh, from Mexico. Uh, to uh, goes to France and then Germany, and so he uh, he goes back to Germany. Um, Holloway goes with him to make sure you know that he makes it and he gets there and everything. And and uh, when he gets there to Germany, he's now out of reach of the United States. The FBI never did interview him, in spite of him being considered a suspect. Within one week of the bombing, he's a suspect, and they never did never did interview him at all and uh, one thing here that's really interesting is that uh, Roger Charles my mentor he was on the uh, defense team as an investigator and uh, what he said is that uh the the CIA was tasked with doing a review of documents uh to uh, or records to show whether or not they had any information about Andy Strasmeier and they did that review and they turned that results of that over to the prosecutors in uh, the McVeigh case and in the FBI document that I have that talks about this, is it doesn't say what their conclusion was. It just simply says that uh, the results were turned over to the prosecutors. And so what happened there is Roger uh, told Stephen Jones, McVeigh's attorney, he said, well, I think you should subpoena uh, this the CIA general counsel. Her name is Linda Cipriani. He said, I think you should subpoena her, get her on the stand and ask her what the report said. And uh, Stephen Jones said, oh, gosh, you know, I I don't think the judge would like that very much. And I think that kind of shows you where Stephen Jones was at. You know, um, come on, who cares? You know, the judge wouldn't like it. Big deal, you know. But so they never did uh, subpoena her. But when Roger wrote his book, Oklahoma City, What the Investigation Missed, he uh, he had a source, a high-level source at the CIA. Roger himself had a lot of very good sources. He had sources among spooks and among people in law enforcement. And uh, what his CIA source told him uh, was that when this records check was done on Strassmeyer, they found that he was a German intelligence operative whose information was being shared with the fbi and i believe what that probably shows is that uh, strassmeyer was in some way tied into the patcon operation and at the same time i believe strassmeyer was being manipulated by these intelligence figures like Holloway, who is his paymaster and is providing funding. Uh, Petruski, who he comes over, he stays with and tries to buy 747s for uh, Petruski, who says he wants to bring Strasmir on to a, quote unquote, rejuvenated black ops crew like he ran during Operation Phoenix, which what did they do during Operation Phoenix? They did, you know, terrorism, bombings, assassinations, shootings, and so All of this looks very suspicious to me. And um, uh, these intelligence figures, I think, are ones that need to be investigated further. And uh, it's an active uh, subject that is being investigated now by uh, various people in the research community, myself included. And uh, ultimately where we leave off is with uh, Strassmeyer safe and sound in Germany. He does not have to uh, testify. Uh, he's falsely—it's uh, falsely, falsely said—that he was never a suspect, and uh, he did do some uh, media interviews after he got back in Germany, and uh, he did an interview with a a writer named Ambrose Evans Pritchard. They, he was a uh, an English investigative journalist, and he he was very um, was he was really frank with Ambrose Evans Pritchard, and it's almost like. He didn't quite know how to handle being um, interviewed by a journalist and and said more than he should have. Ultimately, what he said is that, of course, there was an informant inside of the Oklahoma City bombing. And uh, uh, of course there was. And he said, uh, right now, the informant is scared shitless. He can't come forward. He cannot come forward because what if the informant was the one who was provoking them all along? What if the informant was the one who was saying you need to do this? Which clearly he's talking about himself and he's saying, you know, I was doing what I was told it was to do this. And I didn't think it would lead to a bombing. I figured that they knew what they were doing and they were going to come in and arrest them or whatever. And so it has this look that looks a lot like what you see with the whitmer plot where you have six or seven fbi people who are pushing the plot along and being very aggressive and arranging for it that's the same thing it looks like strassmeyer was doing and i think he was tricked in some way, because uh, Strassmeyer I don't think is a bad person. I don't think that he would want to kill people. I think he was new. This was almost his first professional operation outside of working for the Bundeswehr, where he would have been simply trying to detect East German informants. He's now all of a sudden finding himself in the United States doing this joint German and FBI uh, operation and Uh, he massively screws it up. And I think he was manipulated in some ways that he, he did not, uh, understand that his pushing like he was doing was going to culminate in the death of 168 people, you know, and, um, he almost It's almost like he fessed up when he talked to Ambrose Evans Pritchard, and people can find that in Ambrose Evans Pritchard's book. It's called, uh, it's kind of uh, tabloid sounding title, it's called The Secret Life of Bill Clinton. The reason for that is uh, the book was about various aspects of Bill Clinton's presidency, and he covers like a third of the book is on the Oklahoma City bombing. And it's excellent investigative journalism. Ambrose Evans Pritchard worked for the London Daily Telegraph, very respected journalist, um, very good investigative journalist. And if people want to read that, they can find um, Strauss Meyer's uh, almost confession in that book. And they can find that book on open dot, dot, I think it's openlibrary.com or maybe it's org. But you can read a free copy online there, or of course you can buy it, you know, on Amazon.
1: Yeah. Um I, I, that kind of addresses uh, Drywall O put in the chat, something about the records being destroyed. And we'll, we'll go probably deeper in that in a later episode uh, on this series because uh, I know there's a big Clinton white paper, so I'm assuming what they're kind of alluding to in that. Um, uh, I do want to bring up uh, Justin again, brought up another chat. This time he super chatted, so I'll bring it up. You know, it's deal's a deal. He's giving me money. It says, My belief is that McVeigh was a tool used by bad actors who provide him false intel to plan assumption of empty daycare and his intended target was righteous even the ends were kind of productive. i'll give my take on this um kind of like you alluded to a strassmeyer i do think to some extent he was a tool uh he was a tool to some extent to, uh, and not and to some extent as well i do think to some extent he probably knew what he was doing but i do think like uh there's probably varying levels just because you're like possibly a sheep dipped operative or whatever doesn't mean you're getting every little bit of intel. I do think there is probably some aspect of, you know, trickery or or maybe even incompetence that comes along the way through the chain that maybe he didn't get everything because I do. I, I, I remember something about him. I guess he did apologize about the daycare thing. He didn't want to kill kids supposedly, uh, but I, I mean, my take, I mean, I guess this is inserting my politics a little bit. Uh, I'm not a fan of violent revolution because I do think it never ends well. Uh, I do think it just does, it just leads to bad ends. But I will say, being as I'm an anarchist, if they're attacking the right target, some, if somehow magically all they took out was ATF agents, I wouldn't be for it, but I wouldn't be upset about it. Uh, obviously, the fact there were civilians there and the additional children, that's where I really have a fucking problem uh and to say like at least he did something that that uh, if anything that like that borderline makes me fucking irate i mean it's because i'm a father that shit like fucking drives me to no end so like when you're being offensive in any sort of way that's when i'm like uh, i I don't know if you're just doing like bombs and shit like you're always gonna have unintended targets I, i i don't know i mean if you're doing defensive thing like a militia you know like hey fuck with me and there's gonna be issues like, say, with Waco, you know, Waco took out some feds. I have no issue with that whatsoever at all. They came at them, I mean, not saying all the Waco people were great, not saying Dave Koresh was great, and those allegations of, you know, him sleeping with, uh, you know, like 15-, 16-year-olds, whatever, not okay with that. That doesn't justify the attack, and I am I have no issue with it, whatever, with the feds he took out in the process. Uh, but, yeah, when you, when you start taking out children and, and civilians, you know, just people just, you know, just trying to eke out a living, that's when I have an issue. So I, I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Uh, but I mean, aside from that, if you have something to add to that, you can add to that.
2: No, Definitely, I, I do have something to add yeah, there to that. Is, uh, um, originally, it was thought that the, the target was supposed to be the courthouse. And that's why you saw the bomb-sniffing dogs uh, at the courthouse and the bomb squad at the courthouse uh, the morning the bombing. and also it was expected that the bomb would have was going to be delivered in the middle of the night. and that is why you had the ATF agents out on an all-night surveillance operation. And so when you think about it, if there were a bombing that occurred at a federal building in the middle of the night or the courthouse in the either one in the middle of the night, there would not have been any kids killed. And probably not anyone at all, because it's in the you know two or three in the morning, no one's there. And what's alleged to have happened here is that the people uh, inside the bombing realized that they uh, they were penetrated and had law enforcement on them and surveillance on them, and so they changed the uh, the time from the middle of the night to uh, during the day. And one thing to note here though, regarding the uh, children, is that Timothy McVeigh knew that there was a daycare in the building. He visited the daycare. The daycare's owner or operator was named Danielle Hunt. And Danielle Hunt uh, has an FBI 302 report and an affidavit where she talks about how Timothy McVeigh came into the daycare center and he pretended to have two children. He said that he had two children and that he was going to need daycare services and he wanted to ask them about the daycare. What Danielle Hunt found interesting though is that Timothy McVeigh never once, like a parent would do, mentioned the names or genders of his children when he was there. Instead, he wanted to know about things like, where are the security cameras? Do you have security cameras? He wanted to know the layout of the place. And one thing that's very notable is when he was there in the daycare center, he's looking up and down, and the whole front of the daycare is just, it was it was glass. And he's looking at it and he's saying, there is so much glass. There's so much glass. So he knew that this was going to cause massive damage. Um, so when McVeigh went on 60 Minutes and said, Oh, I thought it was terrible that there were children in the building. He's full of it. He knew there were children in the building. He'd been to the daycare, and he selected the target specifically because it had children, because he wanted to get revenge for Waco. And so, I, I don't uh, see any sort of agreement whatsoever with his uh, methods, uh, with what he chose to do. Um, I don't, I don't agree with it in any way at all. And I think he is guilty. Um, My main issue is that he had accomplices in the bombing. And those accomplices have not been identified, at least by law enforcement. They've not been arrested. And there are other people who should have been co-defendants in this case. And John Doe number two, an individual who is seen by 22 witnesses in downtown Oklahoma City that morning and recorded on surveillance camera video in the rider truck has never been identified and has never been apprehended. And that infuriates me. When I saw uh, these sketches of John Doe two in the newspaper, and I thought, who is this person? I want to know who it is. And since that day, I've been thinking the same thing. And I was infuriated when when I found that the FBI was lying to me and the rest of Oklahomans and saying that John Doe number two does not exist. We have strong reason to believe that John Doe number two is probably an informant. And uh, they, I, I believe the people inside the bombing operation, McVeigh included, realized that they had an informant in their operation, and that's why they did things like changing the time of the bombing and uh, foiling the sting operation and causing it to fail. And so, yeah, so these these are my thoughts, at least in terms of um, in terms of uh, McVeigh's tactics, what he did. Uh, the kids and and all that, you know, um, I, as far as I'm concerned, I think he should burn in hell and I hope he is right now.
1: Yeah, I a hundred percent agree. Like I, like I said, I'm an anarchist, so I'm not a big fan of the government. I'm, I'm in, in some regards, uh, depending on the situation, I'm not against, you know, I even mentioned, you know, with the Waco thing, I have the least, not the least bit of sympathy for the feds who got taken down in that situation. But, you know, this is a completely different situation, like, entirely. Right. Uh, if, you're de- if you're acting in a defensive manner, uh, and, and even then, I guess in some ways, I guess in a retributive manner, if it's on the right people, uh, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm for it, but I'm not necessarily upset about it. But once you start taking on innocence, I'm 100% against you. Like, entirely whatsoever. I don't care if you, in, in the least bit way, try to re- represent anything close to what I uh, agree with uh, i'm not against i'm not for you what's a fucking ever and i hope you burn in hell and i'm an atheist so i if anything that makes me believe there hope there is a hell and you fucking rot in it so i yeah i i this this case particularly irritates the shit out of me because yeah especially the children especially children but then, are not even children aside there were people who were just you know fucking secretaries or what have you they were just you know just there because yeah, yeah. grandparents wh- whatever like there were people there that just you know, like, I don't know, I guess you could make some sort of crazy anarchist or libertarian case that, you know, they were assisting the government in some way. But at some point you're you're, you're, you're getting into a ridiculous territory where it's like this is just someone who's just, you know, working a part time job or whatever, who's just trying to make a few extra bucks and you're trying to justify killing them. And I, I cannot jump on that whatsoever. And if anything, it fucking it makes me irate when people try to I uh, have to contain it. So. Uh, I don't know if you have anything else to add to this. Uh, if not, we're at a good stopping point, I think. Um, and we'll, def- we'll cover the other tertiary characters probably in the next episode. And, uh, I mean, this may evolve more as we go on. But then, uh, you know, in my head, probably the following episode, we'll be getting to like, Karen Ziki, you know, um, you know, trying to do, uh, you know, white papers, stuff like that. Uh, but, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed this. If I was uh, Sam Tripoli right now, I'd say you, you, this was an absolute banger. You drop the hanger, hammer of the gods uh, right here. But th- th- I, this is one I very rarely – I used to watch every single one of my episodes, but this is definitely one I'm going to watch over again because, uh, yeah, there's, there was a lot here that uh, I have not heard elsewhere, and it was really great. So I, I'm glad this is going to be a resource hopefully going forward. Uh, So, yeah, I don't, if you have anything else to add, go ahead and add it. If not, you can drop your plugs.
2: Sure, thanks. So thank you for that, you know, and I really am glad to have the opportunity to really get the information out there. What I'd like to do is offer to listeners the uh, places where they can find the information that I'm talking about so you can see for for yourself uh, that it's sourced and that it is legitimate. And so just to restate um, a couple of books here, Windy Paintings, Aberration in the Heartland of the Real, excellent book. Oklahoma City bombing: What the investigation, Oklahoma City: What the investigating mi- investigation missed, and why it still matters, by Roger Charles and Andrew Gumble. Um, another book called um, called um, uh, the Secret Life of Bill Clinton by Ambrose Evans Pritchard. Those are three excellent books. Then, um, of course, a lot of this stuff comes from newspaper clippings and documents as well. And that can all be found on uh, libertarianinstitute.org slash OKC. I have uh, 1,400 newspaper clippings there that are for students and people who want to write essays, who want to dig into this. They can look at the primary sources. I have the FBI documents out there as well. Um, as far as a, um, things that I do. People can find my writing uh, in Garrison Magazine. I'm going to have an essay in the next issue of Garrison that will be coming out sometime after, October, or f- after uh, August 1st. Um, they can also find me on Twitter at uh, booth underscore OKC. And I have a link to my Medium page on my Twitter profile. And I hope to publish more essays. And I will always put in my end notes what my citations are. Um, because I, I like to be able to stand up and uh, show that anything that I say uh, can be backed up with a citation.
1: Yeah, well, I absolutely appreciate you coming on and this series in general. Uh, this has been great. I'm I- I'm loving this personally, just interviewing. I'm perfectly fine with acting like this is a Scott Horton interview, and just standing back and letting you go. Uh, this has been amazing. Um, but yeah, if you want to follow me, uh I you mean, know, I especially if for the very least of this episode for this series, I think this series is gonna be really important. Uh I this is the No Way Jose show. You can follow me on YouTube, all the major podcasters Odyssey. Uh I'm got a new uh Twitter if you want to follow me there. Uh at your Jose2020. You can follow me on Facebook as well if you want. Uh I also have a Facebook page uh now No Way Jose. Uh, just so you can uh, I don't know if you want to go on there as well because you know it seems to be a trend now that I keep getting nuked off of uh, Twitter even though I don't get that hard. but I don't know, hopefully you takes over and changes things. I don't know. I'm not putting too much faith in it. If you want to give me money, patreon.com just know Jose 2020. Uh, please share this around. I think this is important. So like share, subscribe, comment all that good stuff. Uh, I can't I can't emphasize mo- uh, uh, enough how much I appreciate you coming on to do this. This has been great. I'm looking forward to where this goes. Uh, we'll be covering, like I said, more of the tertiary characters probably going forward on the episodes. That'll be probably one, maybe two. I, I, I have a hard time believing it'll be more than two. And then we'll probably get some, start getting into more of the juicy stuff. A lot of people are looking forward to a lot of the crazy, weird stuff, like white papers, people getting suicided, etc. cetera. Um, and with that, we are out. Thank you, everyone who showed up for the live stream and everyone who watches this later. And we are gone.